Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode five of season 22 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. On the show today, I'm talking to RJ Milner, Head of People Analytics at Uber, about the work he and his team have been doing around employee listening, hybrid working, and productivity. The other thing we started to do was we said, well, hey, let's ask employees. How productive do they feel? And we learned a couple of things. One is that self-reported productivity, if you simply ask an employee how, how productive are they feeling right now, it tracks extremely well to the measures of productivity in their organization. So people are actually fairly good measures of their own productivity. Uh, uh, so that was a good realization for us, that a self-reported measure in the active listening component could be a good proxy for productivity. The other thing we learned is that productivity and focus time were extremely correlated. So as people were going into more meetings, trying to be more productive, and they were sacrificing the focus time, it was a, it was a bit of a treadmill. Right? They're, they're, they're trying to be more productive in the meetings, but they're eliminating the focus time, which actually helps them be more productive. And so we started to share this information and also start, started some experiments to help people get more focus time. Throughout our conversation, RJ talks about the journey that Uber embarked on to use people analytics to better understand employee sentiment during the pandemic and how that work has shaped Uber's approach to hybrid working and employees returning to the office. In this episode, we discuss how Uber conducts employee listening and how its approach to surveys and continuous listening has changed throughout the pandemic. We take a look at some of the insights that RJ's team has gathered on employee productivity, focus time and collaboration while everyone has been based at home. We also talk about how Uber has shared data and insights with the rest of the organisation to help the business and employees make better decisions, as well as looking at how people analytics greatly influenced Uber's return to office strategy and how both the CHRO and CEO use the insights in their communications to the rest of the company. And then finally, RJ shares his thoughts on how HR can add business value as we start to come out of the pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to welcome RJ Milner, Head of People Analytics at Uber to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, RJ, for the second time, actually. Um, Please, can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to to you and your current role at Uber? Thanks, David. It's great to be here again and uh, great great to see you. Uh, My name is RJ Milner. I'm the Global Head of People Analytics at Uber. And uh, I've got the real pleasure of supporting a team whose mission it is to empower leaders and employees to make more evidence-based decisions. And uh, we do that by unlocking the power of people data. And a lot of people ask me, what does that mean? Uh, How do you do that? Why do you do that? And for us, it's really, it's all about helping the business and our employees thrive by providing more actionable insights. And uh, and our team is really based around having um, people analytics, and research serving all of our global business and people functions. So we have responsible, uh, responsibility for providing those insights across our business, handling our people data infrastructure, and also our uh, handling people data privacy, which is a huge issue now and will continue to be so, and also data security. 
Great. Well, before we get into your current work in more detail, it'd be really good to understand a little bit more about your career history and how you got into HR in the first place. Yeah, of course. Uh, so when I think about my work, it's, the focus is really about increasing business impact through our workforce. And that's really been the focus of my work probably for the past 15 or 20 years, David. And specifically, I think what really energizes me is thinking about how changes in our talent management approaches and really how we think about work can have a real impact on our profitability and total shareholder return. And that's been a common theme. I think it really a, a red thread across my work for the, for the past gosh, couple of decades. And it makes me sound old, David, but, uh, but for a while now. And um, talking about career history, uh, prior to Uber, uh, I led people analytics and strategic workforce planning at a couple of, of large Fortune 5 companies. Um, before that, I actually developed and sold people analytics products. And uh, for anybody that's a people analytics practitioner or, or an aspiring practitioner, I really recommend that in your career journey. Uh, it, it's a great way to really understand the user and develop user centricity. Uh, but it's also wonderful to build kind of a, a, a sales mindset and a sales skill set. I mean, that serves everyone well as they develop in their career and, and become a leader in, in whatever field. Uh, and then uh, prior, to, uh, prior to that, I spent about seven years in research and consulting with a company called Corporate Executive Board, now Gartner, which was an, an amazing experience, uh, really learning about next practices and human resources, working with amazing companies around the world, but also learning how to, how to build a rigorous research study and think analytically and critically. Uh, but to answer your question about how I got in HR in the first place, it was actually in financial services, specifically in investment banking. And if you take the dial back to the beginning of the millennium, uh, so in the, the early 2000s, right after the, the first dot-com bubble burst, uh, we were trying to understand how do you value these companies that, uh, that have high revenue and, and zero profitability. And one of the, the questions that came out was, well, is there a way to quantify human capital? Uh, you know, that term. And uh, we were starting to do some work around that, specific, specifically quantifying leadership bench strength. And I became fascinated by what human resources had the potential to become. So specifically, can we really think about uh, applying statistical techniques and even financial models to how the workforce operates and how changes in talent management strategies or philosophies could empower employees but also drive more business impact through that. And this is in the early 2000s. And that's what started me on this journey and this journey into human resources, which I knew nothing about as a young investment banker at that time. And I've never looked back. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you're probably seeing it as well, that the investment community is, is, has a growing interest in, let's call it human capital. Um, you know, we saw that we've seen the moves by the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US to, 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 to you know, to, for companies to disclose more about human capital. We've seen the ISO standard now around human capital reporting. You know, this is a real opportunity, isn't it, for people analytics teams, for, for, for HR leaders, really, to, to start providing the, the information, um, the right information that A, supports shareholders, but it also should help, helps the business make decisions and, and it. I think it's a trend we're going to see. It's almost been reactivated. You were looking at it in the early 2000s, which I think is very ahead of, ahead of, the, ahead of the time from the organization you were in. But investors are now more often looking at human capital information, aren't they? Absolutely. And you saw the changes to SEC reporting that happened a couple of years ago. Um, and 
yeah, that was a, I think that was a watershed moment. There was a long time coming. Uh, so there were a lot of initiatives that, ca- that came up to that. Uh, and, and there's a uh, continuing focus, especially in the ESG community around how, um, how, do we, how do we give investors more information? I think an important focus there, David, is not just providing information, but providing context and insight. And yeah. one, of the, one of the challenges is not getting stuck providing a metric uh, or getting put into a box of, I need this number, but providing the right insight and information that tells the story of the business. And that's where people analytics can really provide value, is not just being a reporting function, saying, well, here's your headcount number or the turning number, turnover, or how many hours of training. Uh, but here's what's actually happening in our workforce and how that's contributing to our business strategy uh, and achieving our business objectives and goals. And, and that is a very important piece of information. Yeah, and certainly we're going to talk, you know, throughout the rest of the conversation more around the link between people analytics and business outcomes and employee outcomes as well. You know, as you said, you've been around the people analytics space now for, for more than 10 years. Um, you know, it's changed a lot over that time, hasn't it? You know, what impact do you think the pandemic has had on the field in general and, and how did it impact people analytics at Uber? Well, it's, it's a great question. I think it was catalytic in many ways. Uh, we talk a lot, you know, we talk in this forum and other forums about uh, how the pandemic shined a spotlight on the role of the chief people officer uh, and really put them in, in the forefront in so many ways. Uh, and you've had wonderful chief people officers on this program talking about this. The, uh, and in many ways, I think people analytics is often at the right hand of the chief people officer, providing them with insights that they can then take action on. Um, with, um, when I think about the pandemic and kind of what we, what we learned through it uh, and um, how it changed the field for us, two things come in, in mind, um, both in terms of how it changed HR, but also for the business, the importance of empathy and the importance of user centricity. And, and those are, as I mentioned, critically important for the HR field and people analytics, but also critically important for our business. So let's start with the first one, empathy. Um, really understanding how important it is to have empathy. You know, Empathy for our, our employees, our workforce, from a business perspective, how important it is to have empathy for our customers, our riders, our earners, our merchants, the communities in which we operate. It's critical for us to, to build with heart, which is one of our values, but to, to be able to build the right products, to be able to be the best company that, that we can be. And I'll tell you a quick story about empathy. Um, the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, we went from about 90%, about 90% of our workforce changed work location. You know, they went from working primarily in the office to, to totally work from home. We conducted a quick survey because we needed to understand how our employees were doing, like how is their well-being, and also how we could help. And one of the things that we heard, particularly from caregivers, was I just need my peers, my colleagues, and my managers to understand what I'm going through right now. especially for caregivers, like I'm having to work early hours and late hours because of my other responsibilities. Um, I've got these meetings I have to attend to. There are things that that I could really use help with, and and we we address those things, fortunately, through the feedback in that survey. But what I really need right now is some understanding. 
And so that empathy is incredibly important and we're continuing to, to build that into our work and, and train that. I think it's, just, and we've heard this from other places as well, it's becoming an incredibly important leadership skill if it wasn't always. I think we're recognizing now that it is. Uh, the second piece is user centricity, specifically in our case, putting employees at the center of the conversation. Um, and you know, in the past, I think we did a lot of talking about employees as an HR function and specifically as, a, as people analytics communities. Um, yeah. Then we did a lot of talking to employees. I think now we do a lot more talking with employees and having a dialogue with employees. And that's where, for instance, employee listening is so important. It's not just employee listening, it's actually having a dialogue uh, in, a, in a conversation. And then if I was to add one more thing, David, but besides empathy and user centricity, it would be speed. So really out of necessity, we had to do a lot of things much, much more quickly during the pandemic. Uh, first and foremost, because safety was not was an issue, the safety of our, and health of our employees. Uh, so there were many processes that we had to stand up, do new things, and do all of them extremely fast. Um, the, that set a new bar in terms of the speed with which we move and get things done. And I don't think that expectation moved. So now we know we can move that quickly. We can move with that sense of urgency and alacrity. And while we may not always need to move that quickly, we know we can, and I think the expectation is there and we have that of ourselves to move that quickly. So I'll give you an, ex an example there. Um, that COVID survey I just mentioned that we did in the very, very early stages of the pandemic. Uh, designing that in-house, uh, building the survey, administering it, that would typically, you know, for most organizations and for us, you know, take weeks to do. We did that in three business days um, because we had to, right? And, yeah. and we're very fortunate to have a, a very gifted team uh, to be able to do that. That's now the expectation. And while we, we you know, don't need to design and administer every survey in three business days, we know that we can and we're never going back to taking weeks to do it again. Uh, and so I think there is that new expectation of we, we now know the speed with which we can operate. Yeah, and I suppose that extends to, we're going to talk about listening now, to, to, to listening. If employees see that the company's listening to them, take, you know, showing empathy, taking action on what employees say um, and communicating that they're doing that, then you can't go back from that. You've got to keep it going, you know. So, you know, it's it, it's it's almost like you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, you, you you've got to keep delivering on it. And obviously, one of the areas that you've really invested in, and you know, and, you know, you've obviously shared some of that um, along along the journey is 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 in the investment that you've made in employee listening. Could could you talk us through that that journey that you've been on with regards to continuous listening at, at, at Uber? Yeah, it's, it's been a fun journey. And a lot of it was precipitated uh, by the pandemic in some ways. So it's a wonderful tie-in uh, that you're asking here, David. So uh, Uber's had employee listening in, in different ways for, for, for quite some time. And we used to run a semi-annual survey. But what we, what we recognized is that a lot can happen in six months. So we needed something to fill the gaps so that employees can tell us what they need when they need it. And so that leaders and, the, and also process owners can respond in a more timely way. And that's really where continuous listening came, came from for us. 
Now, we've been thinking about continuous listening for some time. Why I say the pandemic kind of precipitated it is that um, when we entered the pandemic in early 2020, we needed something more timely than every six months. Uh, so it was that catalytic event. And um, that, um, that survey I mentioned, the COVID survey, was the beginning of continuous listening in a lot of ways for us. And um, I mentioned earlier, we needed something to understand how our employees were doing and, and how we could help. Uh, we got a lot of insight from that. You know, for instance, I mentioned that uh, you know, one of the things we found was that caregivers um, were having a harder time than others, particularly caregivers with uh, children less than five years old. And so that, that gave us a lot of information about how we could help them, different policies we could put in place, uh, how to give them more flexibility, even things like you know, more flexible, creating flexible work hours for folks, giving people the freedom to miss meetings, creating behaviors around recording meetings, especially non-essential ones and coming back to them later. Simple things that we can put in place quickly and, and, and come back. Um, and in that particular case, after six months, we saw a meaningful increase in that caregiver cohort on engagement and satisfaction and intent to stay. Um, and so that really got the ball rolling for us. So this is something that we need to do on a, on a regular basis, on a steady state basis. And so that so we began the continuous listening program from that starting point. And when we think about continuous listening, what I really think about is continuous response. So it's not just hearing, it's responding. Going back to that point earlier about user centricity, that it's a it needs to be a response and a dialogue. So we did a couple of things structurally. Uh, one is we moved from a semi-annual survey cadence to monthly surveys. And those monthly surveys went from being census, so surveying all employees, to representative samples of our workforce. And that really helped alleviate the survey fatigue. And then we also cut the length of these surveys. So we didn't want these surveys to be you know, big things that take you know, a lot, 15 minutes or something to do. So, so we cut the surveys to make them much more digestible and bite-sized. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of our more monthly cadence around continuous listening that stemmed from our initial, our initial uh, COVID survey that happened in the beginning of 2020. Um, I mentioned that continuous listening is, in my mind, really continuous response. And it's hard to drive response if our stakeholders aren't aware of the results. Right? You can't just keep it all internally and have this wonderful corpus of, of data. So we need to be transparent and walk in daylight here. And we did that through a, a series of products that we, that we deployed out. You know, one is manager dashboards. So making sure that our leaders and process owners can see the results. Uh, we also have an employee dashboard where employees can see the results. Um, and then we're also communicating with our employees. And so we do that typically through our global all hands. We have, um, we have, uh, a bi-weekly cadence of, of meetings with all of our employees. And so we'll, we'll show up every once in a while on those and say, here, not just here are the results, but here are the insights. Here's what we're seeing from these. Here's what it means. And then we can communicate through other channels too, email, Slack, those types of comms. And, you know, and of course, res, you know, results, insights, and then actions we've taken and what, what's result, you know, what the outcomes have resulted from the actions as well. And I know we're going to talk a, a, a little bit about that as well, particularly with, in relation to something with your, your CEO. Um, 
obviously surveys are, are, are one area. What other investments did you make in in tools and technology as well? Because I think you looked at some sort of passive uh, listening um, technologies yeah. as well. No, it's good. It's good to kind of get deep into it. The the um, you know, employee listening or continuous listening can mean different things to different folks. So I'm really glad you you asked the question. We take an integrated approach, uh, combining both active and passive. And let me kind of dig into both those terms because those might be new to, to some people or, or they can be confusing too. And so when I talk about active approaches, what I mean is surveying employees uh, or, and, uh, about their sentiment. And within that bucket of active listening or, or traditional surveys, uh, you know, of course we do all electronically, but um, we have different types of surveys or different products within that part of our continuous listening program. So for instance, we have the monthly surveys uh, that, I, that I just mentioned. So these are, are shorter surveys that go to a representative sample of the population. It gives us great signal on some very key metrics that we're looking at. You know, we're trying to understand collaboration. We're understanding uh, a, lot of, a lot of different elements inside there. We also have uh, surveys that are designed towards different parts of uh, employees' journey at our company, their, their, their employment life cycle. So yeah. it could be they get triggered when, when someone's a candidate, so before they've even started with the company or during their onboarding. And so we manage those surveys as well that are designed to understand a very specific part of their, of their employment journey or their experience. And then we also have kind of the, the core employment survey that we're now doing you know, once a year. Uh, and that's a, I think of that as like a tent post survey. There's a, there's a lot inside of that and we go, very, we go very deep in that. So all of those kind of fit in the active side of our continuous listening program. When I talk about passive listening, what I mean there is collecting aggregate de-identified data. So nothing at the individual level, we're all talking about aggregated team level data. But here, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at things like meeting volume, collaboration time, lots, lots of data about kind of how teams are working. And when you combine sentiment from the active approach with how work is actually getting done, on the passive approach, magic happens. Uh, and that's where I think the insights really come in. You can get some good insights on the sentiment, get some great insights from the sentiment in the comments. It's a rich source of information. You can get some great insights from the passive side, kind of the quant side of the house. When you bring them together, it's where a lot of the work happens, but it's also where it's a lot of the real magic happens. You can understand what's really happening in your workforce, where the right interventions might be, and where their recommendations might be. And I think, you know, that leads on nicely to the, to the next question. I think that's given you some incredible insights around employee productivity, focus time, and collaboration while people have been based remote, hasn't it? It has. And, and we're continuing to monitor this closely. Uh, but um, one of the things that we noticed, I mentioned uh, as people went from home, and I mentioned about 90% of our workforce had a shift in, in location. They went from being primarily in the office uh, to working from home, is that collaboration increased. And yep. so collaboration kind of within departments and even across departments increased significantly after working from home. And what we realized is that people were in more meetings with more people for more of the day. Uh, and uh, 
you know, as, as we looked across this kind of combined data set, what we started to understand was that time in meetings went up by about a third after going, uh, working from home. I think the number of meetings went up by about 40%, but also we were having larger meetings. So uh, the number of employees in a meeting went up by about 45%. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, what we were seeing was that the sense of informal connections and the sense of community was actually decreasing. Um, and that was where the sentiment is coming in. So you know, kind of what's, what's happening here? Well, one of the things we were also looking at was how much time is being spent in what we think of as focus time. And when I say focus time, what I mean is two hours or more of uninterrupted time that you can dedicate to a process or task. You know, the time that we can really dig in uh, and, and you know, work on a project or, or uh, you know, a, a specific body of work. And what was happening was that as meetings were going up by a, you know, by a third or 40%, focus time had actually dropped by 30%. So as we're trying to be more productive, as we're trying to collaborate more, and we're all working from home and we're distance from one another. We naturally say, well, got to collaborate, got to get work done. That means I need to meet, right? Uh, and I need to meet with more people because that's what's going to create more productivity. That's what's going to get the work done. And we were cannibalizing this focus time, this dedicated time to get work done. Well, at the same time, one of the things that we started to ask ourselves is, well, well, then what's happening with productivity? What's happening with employee productivity? And that's a really sticky question to, to answer because productivity means different things to different organizations. I don't think there's a single definition to productivity. Um, uh, so, for instance, just within our company, uh, different divisions will measure productivity different ways based upon the work that they need to do. And we worked with a lot of those different divisions and understood how productivity was changing and tracking. The other thing we started to do was we said, well, hey, let's ask employees. How productive do they feel? And we learned a couple of things. One is that self-reported productivity, if you simply ask an employee how, how productive are they feeling right now, it tracks extremely well to the measures of productivity in their organization. So people are actually fairly good measures of their own productivity. Uh, uh, so that was a good realization for us, that a self-reported measure in the active listening component could be a good proxy for productivity. The other thing we learned is that productivity and focus time were extremely correlated. So as people were going into more meetings, trying to be more productive, and they were sacrificing the focus time, it was a, it was a bit of a treadmill. Right? They're, they're, they're trying to be more productive in the meetings, but they're eliminating the focus time, which actually helps them be more productive. And so we started to share this information and also start, started some experiments to help people get more focus time. One of which was, uh, and I kind of describe it as a virtual assistant that would help uh, reschedule meetings on folks' calendars to block that focus time in, to make sure they were getting a certain amount of focus time per week. And, and we're seeing positive results from that thus far. Um, one of the areas that we're starting to dig into now is really helping think through what types of meetings um, will drive more productivity and collaboration. That it's not just about um, having more collaboration, but more effective collaboration. That's probably at, at very early stages, but a body of work we're, we're digging into now. That's really fascinating. And for those listening that want to 
find out more about that, that, that focus time and the tool that, you, that you've mentioned there, RJ. I think you co-authored uh, an HBR article with Rob Cross towards the end of last year. I think there was a couple of guys from General Mills and, and as co-authors as well in there as well. So definitely recommend people checking that, checking that out. When we come back in just a moment, RJ talks about how Uber's employee listening strategy has influenced its approach to employees returning to the office. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Orgview. In a time when disruption and uncertainty are constantly present, Orgview puts businesses on the front foot. As the leading organizational planning and design software platform, Orgview captures the power of data and modeling to build more adaptable, better performing organizations. Orgview gives you control of your organization and with data evidence, helps you make faster, more confident decisions to get the right people doing the right work at the right cost. This is real-time organizational planning and design for times of change. Orgview is used by the world's largest and best-known enterprises to fearlessly build the organizations they want tomorrow, today. To discover more, visit orgview.com. That's O-R-G-V-U-E dot com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with RJ Milner. Now, back to the conversation. Um, so how have the insights that you've gained through, through through listening, you know, both active and the passive, influenced your strategy around return to office? You know, and how has Uber decided to adapt this over time to accommodate employee feedback and, and obviously all the different locations that, that you've served? Yeah. One of the things that I am uh, most impressed by and, and really proud of at, at Uber is how the company has built its work philosophy and the way it's thinking about return to office around employee feedback. And so you know, we're, we're looking at return to office in a way that, um, that focuses on employee choice while driving business outcomes. And employee feedback has been an incredibly important part of that. So it's been a, it's been a fascinating journey. If I, if I take you to um, the second half of 2020, from the very beginning of, of early 2021, we were doing a lot of sensing around kind of employee perceptions uh, of, of work from home, of hybrid, uh, when, co- when the pandemic uh, and what are your perceptions? What would you like to do? And you know, what we heard at that point was that the vast majority of, of employees preferred a hybrid model. Um, and, uh, and, and what that meant for, for most of them was working from home up to about two days per week. And as we canvassed the external research, we were seeing a lot of that as well. You know, so there were several meta-analyses showing a two-day work from home model strike that balance between kind of balancing work-life responsibilities and also having strong relationships with coworkers. And, and we were really trying from a company perspective to optimize for both productivity, engagement, culture and community, flexibility, which we knew was important, and, and also collaboration. So we're trying to optimize for all these things while also building in employee feedback. 
And so what that led to was an initial work philosophy or return to office approach in early 21, uh, where we had at least three days in office at someone's home office where they were initially located, right? which made a lot of sense. I think we heard that from a lot of organizations around that time. We continued to listen, as we always do with continuous listening. Um, and, and what we found was that employees' perceptions started to shift. What we also started to see through the analysis was that employees had different, um, different needs. And I give tremendous, tremendous credit uh, in our own leadership for taking, listening to that uh, feedback and listening to what we were providing through continuous listening and having the courage to change tack. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. And so I'm a person who's extremely proud of our own leadership team uh, for what they did. But to give you a sense of, of, of what we started to see in the, in the first half of 21, um, the, the perceptions were largely the same. What came out in the data was a strong preference for flexibility. And we continue to see this. Um, slightly more employees, very slightly, preferred a, a full-time work from home option. But what we really saw was this continued desire for a hybrid model, but with expanded work from home options. Um, and there was this big difference in favorability between, uh, very specifically, between two days working from home and three days working from home. So there's a real big inflection point there. Um, but one of the biggest takeaways, at least for me, um, and maybe this, this is common sense, uh, but employees aren't monolithic. You know, it, it, people have individual needs, preferences, and desires. And when we looked across groups of employees, whether it's by function or location, there are some very strong trends across groups that were different from one another, right? And so what that told us was there's a, there's a need for more flexibility. While the first approach made sense, was rooted in data and based on employee preferences, it might be time to revisit. And so... Again, kind of huge credit to our leadership team for listening to that and then having the courage to revisit a very, very big decision. And mm -hmm. in the middle of 2021, 20, uh, we did revisit that and we anchored around a, a hybrid and return to office model that focuses on employee choice while maximizing those business outcomes. And kind of the, the high level is that we trust our employees to do the right thing. And we want to give them the freedom to choose to work where they're going to be the most productive. And so we changed the model or the return to office approach based on that employee feedback to give folks, first off, the flexibility to choose their office location, you know, based upon kind of the offices we have and where we're doing work, um, more flexibility around when they're in the office. So moving away from that three, two model, three days in the office, two days work from home to about uh, half of the time in the office, because we do believe there are real benefits from being together in the office. But then half the time could be, maybe it's uh, three and two, maybe it's five days in the office one day, five days working from home the next week. Um, the flexibility to work totally remotely. And then also the flexibility to work anywhere in the world for four weeks of the year. And that was really, that was rooted on the changes that we saw in employee feedback and perceptions. And we continue to listen and learn and iterate as we go. So we're, going to, we're continuing to use continuous listening to understand those sentiments and, and, uh, and, and iterate. 
and and the way you rolled it out the 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 kind of revision to the the approach to hybrid was really interesting i think and really talks to what you were saying about you know the involvement of the leadership team at, at uber can, can you tell us how that was announced and the role you played as the as the people analytics leader and how that involves so involved you know the chro chief people officer and and uh, and uber ceo as well yeah david it was particularly fun uh so uh, we are a data-driven company uh, and so uh, we wanted uh, we wanted our employees and our teams to understand first off what we were doing with continuous listening, uh, but also kind of where our uh, our work philosophy and return to office approach came from, and then it was based on employee feedback, uh, and we wanted to be you know, very open and transparent about that. And so, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we have a global all hands meeting that happens every two weeks. Uh, it's for all of our employees around the world, uh, and so. Uh, we're doing them kind of hybrid now, combination of live and uh, and virtual. Back in t- last year, of course, it was all virtual. And um, the way that we rolled this out was actually I joined one of uh, one of our global all hands, and at the beginning of the all hands, introduced the workforce to continuous listening. And so by that time, everyone uh, or most most people at the company had taken a, a survey. Uh, the vast majority of folks had at least one. Of, of continuous listening, so they were, they'd experienced it, but they may not have understood kind of the entirety of the program, why we were doing it. So I introduced, introduced them to what continuous listening is. I shared what we had found, uh, some, some insights that I, I, uh, I shared with you just now about employee preferences and work from home, some other things that we were seeing, um, the importance of flexibility, how preferences had shifted, and, and how, uh, how preferences were also different you know, between groups and, 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 and other folks um, and, that, and the importance of flexibility that we were seeing. And then that led in uh, to the announcement of our new return to office policy uh, that was led by our CEO and our chief people officer. And so based upon what we had just shared, the employee sentiment, uh, they led into the new way that we were looking at uh, our work philosophy and how we want to return to office based upon those elements of flexibility that I was just mentioning earlier. So it was, a, it was a great transition. It's a wonderful way to be able to share how we're listening uh, to the workforce, but how we're also how we're taking action. Uh, one of the one of the teasers I, I left uh, in in my session was that um, a you know, we're moving continuous listening from test to prod. So we've been testing over the past several months. Now we're moving to production because it's and making this a steady state thing. It's been so successful. We're listening to your feedback. And we're taking action on your feedback, and you'll hear from Dar in a minute about that. And then we handed it over and, and actually showed how we changed, uh, made a significant change based upon what employees were telling us. And it, I mean, it, it's a perfect example of how business, uh, so people analytics informs business decisions and, and creates business outcomes. I mean, you can't get a better example than that, really, I don't think, <laughs> can you? <laughs> You're biased. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, and I think it's a, when we talk about continuous listening and continuous response uh, and that idea of user centricity, uh, it, uh, we really do want um, uh, to, for employee voice to be baked into the decisions we make and what we do. And so I do think it's a great example. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, 
and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with RJ as he talks about how the people analytics team is starting to work with workplace data and get involved in decisions around office design and utilization. You know, and it kind of leads on quite nicely to, to, to maybe a future evolution in people analytics. We're certainly starting to see it with, with certain companies, particularly in, on the West Coast of the US, actually, where, you know, workforce and workplace data is increasingly coming together. So I'd love to hear how, how the people analytics team at, at Uber has been involved in decisions around space utilization, office configuration, you know, and any changes that Uber's made since the pandemic to its offices. Yeah, I think that that's a, a wonderful frontier for, for people analytics. And there's a lot of work that can be done here. Uh, we're dipping a toe in it. It's probably the best thing, best way to describe describe our work here. Um, but there's a, there's a lot more that, that we can do. I get really excited by the, the topic. Uh, you know, for us, offices continue to be central uh, to, to our view of collaboration and also kind of how we think about our cultural identity. And so, you know, it's a place where, where our, our employees can build a sense of community, engage and collaborate with one another. And so that linkage between the data and the people analytics and the workplace and workplace design is a, is a really important one. Um, to give you an example, David, in, this, in the second half or so of 2020, we began asking our employees through continuous listening um, about kind of the advantages of working from home versus working in the office. What are the trade-offs? Even getting into detail about, hey, what types of spaces do you value most inside the office? Um, and that, that information was, was insightful. It also helped inform a lot of, our, of how we're designing the workspace. And we partnered very closely with our, our workplace and real estate team. Um, what we, some of what we learned uh, was that employees, what employees valued most was the informal interaction with their colleagues and the improved collaboration that happens when you're in, when you're in person. Right? Um, maybe not surprising, based on that, the rooms they value most were the kitchens and social areas. Well, we, we have great food and snacks, but it's also the, the collaboration that comes in those places. The serendipitous moments, you know, those, those impromptu conversations where a great idea sparks. Uh, and the collaboration areas. And our workplace uh, teams, the design teams and the real estate teams have done an amazing job taking that kind of feedback and running with it. So when you look at the design of our of our office spaces, particularly the, the larger ones that we think of as talent hubs, um, there are a couple of key elements that they're baking into those to make them attractive places where people want to come and collaborate and ideate together, but also that reinforce our cultural identity. Going back to some of those topics I mentioned earlier, we were trying to optimize for you know, productivity, collaboration, community, those areas. Um, first, many of our spaces have an activity-based work design that encourage natural movement that, uh, where we, will, uh, we can move to different places to do the type of work that we need to be doing in the moment. So maybe it's, maybe it's at a desk, maybe it's in a conference room, maybe it's out in a solarium or a library or a coffee bar. You know, I, I need more interaction with folks. I need less interaction with folks. It's, 
Um, I need a quiet space, a loud space. So it really encourages that natural movement. It also reinforces our culture where we have a mission to change the way the world moves for the better, right? So it's encouraging that movement. It's reinforcing our culture. Um, we've incorporated fitness centers and interconnecting stairs to guide employees to move around, right? It also really helps with our, our well-being at the same time. Um, there's a tremendous amount of social and collaboration areas, kind of reinforcing what we saw in the data. Um, when you think about the importance of, of DNI, you know, um, we've designed our spaces to be inclusive and representative of the diverse work work workforce that we have. So all gender restrooms is a good example of those uh, care rooms and nursing rooms, which is an important design element in our workspaces. Um, but also, you know, having design that that evokes and reinforces our culture. Going back to the spaces, when we get together in these spaces, we want places that reinforce kind of who we are as a company. Uber kind of exists in this nexus between the digital world and and the hyper local, right? Where you're, you're, we can take you know, go anywhere, get anything, yeah. and there's a local flavor to each office. It's really a celebration of the city that we're a part of. So you have these design elements that invoke movement. It's part of our mission, but also a celebration of the of the local area that we are. It might be Mexico City or Amsterdam or New York or Chicago, San Francisco, whatever it might be. And so it's been it's been a real pleasure to see that kind of interconnection between people analytics and workplace design. And I also think there's there's just a wonderful frontier there as as we as we're at just the very beginning as a as a uh, as a as a world really of this hybrid work movement. No, I, I couldn't put it better. It definitely is a frontier um, area for, for people analytics and organizations, as you said, because, I mean, hopefully we are, hopefully are going to be entering the hybrid world uh, this year. Um, and, you know, things will change, isn't it? Because, again, we'll continue listening to employees or understand how they're using the workspace versus, you know, the work that they're doing from home. You know, we'll be able to provide insights on that, but we'll also be able to provide advice to employees, to managers, to, to leaders around Know, more effective use of the workspace and 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 that might lead to more redesign as well so yeah really really fascinating um topic i think we could do a whole episode on that but um what i'd be interested here what's reaction been from the business to all the additional insights that you've been generating through continuous listening and you know and what are you going to be working on next and and i presume expectation levels have risen as well <laughs> well you know the, the biggest compliment uh that i think we can get as a as a function is for action to be taken based upon our insights. And so the, the you know, that our insights are informing policy uh, and informing changes is to me um, a, a huge uh, a huge credit and huge success to the, for, for the team. Uh, and so that's, uh, I think that's an, an excellent response where we, where we see it informing uh, work philosophy or, or RTO or, or different things. Uh, in terms of continuous listening, We've had a, a, a wonderful response. So we continue to have strong response rates to our surveys for employees. They're leaning in. We get questions at our different meetings about employee sentiment um, and about, on average, I believe about the, around half of managers every month are accessing their survey dashboards, which for a uh, for a people product is a pretty good utilization rate. Um, the, we actually have one thing that I look at closely is a particular question that we ask in our surveys. We ask this in our monthly surveys as well as our annual survey, which is, do you believe action will be taken on, uh, on this survey? 
you know, the action will be taken on, on your uh, responses. That has traditionally, in years past, been a relatively low uh, response question. Uh, over the last year, we've seen that go up 17%. Uh, so we're seeing a very strong trend up on that. And, and that, uh, for me, that's a critical success measure for continuous listening. One is action being taken on this stuff or people listening to it. Secondly, do employees believe that action is being taken on it? Is it visible to them? So if it's all happening in a black box, it might be great that the changes are being based on employee feedback, but if employees don't know it, you're not really getting the, the dividend. Um, I think if I look forward, one of the biggest challenges that we'll continue to learn and, and test our way through is actionability and matching the volume and cadence of information to how quickly leaders and process owners can take action on that information. Right? So um, to give you an example, if I provide updated results monthly to, to leaders or to a process owner, that might be interesting to them. They might want to track how they're doing, but they might also ask, and I do get this question, what do I do with this? So other than tracking performance against a KPI or out of just general interest, how do I take action on this, right? And so that might not be the right cadence. Maybe less frequently is the right cadence for someone to be able to take actual action on something, um, or, at least, or, or at least showing the information to them, right? Giving them a, a way to interact with it. On the other hand, if I want to understand how a particular event is affecting sentiment, I might need to, to listen more frequently, right? Um, and so this is something that we're still experimenting, testing, and learning our way through. Um, in terms of where are we going next, I think um, I mentioned earlier, it might not necessarily be about more collaboration. It might be about more collaboration when, at different, you know, between different teams or different points of a product cycle. Um, or it might be about more effective collaboration. And that's where we're really starting to dig in. And so in the context of hybrid work, for example, it's not just about how many days do I come into the office or what types of work is, or jobs are better in office or remote, although it's a valid question. In my mind, it's what types of work um, are, are better done face-to-face versus not face-to-face. If I need to um, do some work around ideation, we're, we're building something, we, we're working on strategy or product, is that the time to come into the office and be face-to-face with the teams? Or yeah. I need to work cross-functional with these teams. If I need to do some real bonding work, face-to-face, other times when it's not as important. We're looking at that or the structure of meetings. How do we structure the meetings so that they're more effective uses of time? I think that's where, um, where I've got particular interest right now. Really interesting. Well, the time has flown by, RJ, as it usually does when, when we talk. And um, we're, we're on to the question now that we're asking everyone in this series. And, you know, you probably had to go, we can probably go broader than the listening one on this one. Um, you know, what, what do you believe to be the two to three things? Probably there are more, but let's just keep it to two to three, maybe, that HR will need to do to really add business value as we hopefully come out of the pandemic. Well, David, as always, this has been a real pleasure. So thanks for having me on, first and foremost. Uh, but I love this question. I'm so glad you asked it, and I've been looking forward to it. Um, first off, I love that the question is about adding business value. So, so thanks for adding that question. 
I think there are two things. Um, first, going back to, to some of what I mentioned in terms of learnings from the pandemic, um, to, to really add business value, I think HR needs to ensure we're taking a user-centric approach. Um, specifically, understanding how employees and leaders are experiencing work and our own processes. And are we designing these experiences to improve business outcomes? And that's, that's why employee listening is one of the reasons why employee listening is so important. It gives a signal into this. But there are other things that we can do as well. And there's a, certainly a wonderful body of work around DX here. Um, the second is around actionability. And we have a real risk, especially in the people analytics field, I think, of quickly building a mountain of insights that aren't put into action. And so if, if the first takeaway is having a, a user-centric approach, uh, I think the second is really digging into a culture of experimentation, um, moving to action quickly by testing and learning, and encouraging a culture of experimentation and measurement where we can get to action quickly. It's great to get to the insights, and I love the insights being in the people analytics field, but we need to get from the insights to action as quickly as we can in a responsible way. And so I really encourage experimentation, disciplined measurement, so we can get that insight to action quickly. And we've arguably shown in many of our organizations that we can adopt a culture of experimentation because we've had to in the last two years. So let's hope we can keep that moving forward. RJ, it's always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You are one of the few people we've had on twice, so that, that's testament to, to your knowledge and experience in this space. Um, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and follow you on social media and, and find out more about your work? Well, it's, it's a real pleasure, David. Thanks for having me on again. And for everyone listening, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. It's the best way to get a hold of me, and I, I look forward to hearing from you. RJ. Thank you very much indeed and uh, look forward to seeing you in person hopefully soon. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week for episode one of series 23. Well, I'll be joined by Whitney Johnson, CEO at Disruption Advisors, a world authority on smart growth leadership and author of a new book entitled Smart Growth. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.